Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Amen. Amen. Great to see you this morning. You can be seated. As you're seated, do me a favor. Turn to someone. Just look at them. Just kind of wave. Say, hey, glad you're here this morning. Glad you're here. Glad you're close to me. Turn around and welcome everybody at home. Glad you're here. Glad you're joining us. And we're excited you're with us today. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them and turn to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to kind of start off in chapter 3, then we're going to chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 11. We're going to be all over the 1 Corinthians today as we uh, head into the second week of a series that we've entitled Together. It's this whole idea that God has called us to be one. He's called us to be a family. He's called us to be the body of Christ, and that we as the body of Christ, the family of God, we're called to do things a little different than stick out from the world. Uh, Last week we talked about the power of one and how when we are unified, when we are one as the body of Christ, that kind of sticks out to a world that tends to be very divided. And today we want to talk a little bit about doing conflict in a way that is God calls us. We, We do conflict, right? It's normal, it's natural, and it's neutral. How we do it determines whether or not it's sinful, but We do it different than the world around us, and that's what we want to take a look at today. Um, Heard the story of Myrtle. Myrtle was the gossip. She was the church gossip. She took it upon herself to make sure that everybody knew the moral business of every other person. She just kind of was the self-proclaimed. I'll be honest with you, a lot of folks in the church didn't like it so much. They wanted to say something to her. But they were so scared of her, they never wanted to say anything. And so they just kind of kept quiet. And she met George. George was new to the church, kind of a quiet guy. And George happened to park his truck in front of the local bar. Well, I'm telling you what, next time they were in church, Myrtle went at it. She said, I I think George is an alcoholic. I think everybody knows because his truck was parked in front of the local bar, and we all know what he must have been doing inside. He's an alcoholic. Now, George didn't say anything. Just kind of a quiet guy. He just looked at her, got outside, went to the parking lot, got into his truck, drove his truck down in front of Myrtle's house, left him parked there all night. (laughs) You got that much quicker than any other. First hour, a guy afterwards said, that was hilarious. I didn't get it for five minutes. But afterwards, couldn't stop laughing. That's what you call passive-aggressive. Not aggressive-aggressive. I'm not sure what that is. Anyway, we're going to get into business today. Um, We want to talk today a little bit about uh, doing conflict. Now, I want to tell you, this series, this is just kind of Pastor Phil's heart. Um, I have been watching over the last number of months as we see the world and how the world does things. And uh, it really doesn't bother me that much when the world is in chaos and conflict. I care. But it doesn't surprise me because, well, they're not believers. But it does bother me when believers begin to absorb what the world embraces. And when believers start to act like the world, I, I struggle. And so, and it's not any particular thing, it's just been all my heart. I, I've been praying, I've just really been praying that the body of Christ in these days would distinguish itself as a light and salt into our world, that this would be our prime opportunity to to show Christ into our world. And hence, that was why we talked about unity last week. Now, it's interesting because as I've been contemplating this whole thing of conflict, 
I noticed that over the last months, as I've been dwelling upon it, there tend to be three different ways of doing conflict. They're not the only ways. They're just the ways that I've, igno- I've, not, uh, I've noticed. The first way of doing conflict is adversarial. Adversarial. And the idea of adversarial conflict is that I desire peace through clear domination. In other words, if I dominate you and I win, then there's going to be peace, right? And the idea is that there are two opposing forces that stand up against each other, and we're going to do battle and may the best argument win. It's kind of like uh, lawyers in a courtroom. Now, it's probably a really good system, the court system, but, 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 but when you do conflict that way, it doesn't work real well because what tends to happen is you have opposing counsel. That's what they call each other. They're opposing counsel, and one person stands up for one position, and the other person stands up usually for a different position. Both are defending their position. They are exaggerating the distance between them and the other person. They are accentuating how wrong the other person is. They focus on on how right they are. In fact, you'll notice they never acknowledge anything about the other person that may actually help their case. My job is to defend my position. Your job is to defend your position. That's the way it's done. Now, that is a great adversarial system, but it's not a great way to do relationship. Because when there's a clear winner, clear loser, the relationship tends to lose. But I notice that more and more, believers begin to embrace an adversarial nature. Now, there's another one that tends to happen, and it's this idea of acquiescence. Acquiescence is the desire for peace through the lack of conflict. It's the desire that if we can just avoid all conflict, act like there is no disagreement, then we're going to really have peace. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't work. Um, In fact, I find that oftentimes believers think this is the way you're supposed to do conflict. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Because they will be called children of God. Jesus said that if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek, right? I always say if somebody strikes you on the cheek, take off, run. (laughs) Get away from them. Don't don't let them hit you a second time. Kidding. Uh, But as you look at this whole idea of conflict, we think that Jesus wants us just to simply be doormats and act as though uh, everything's okay. That isn't actually what Jesus taught. Jesus actually taught that peacemaking means that we are fighting for peace. Sometimes you actually have to have conflict to bring about peace. But we often will acquiesce, which means it's the white flag concept. If I just surrender, if I just give in to everything, if I, it'll just make the conflict go away. Now, the problem with that is, is that if I do that, what I've really done is I've internalized the conflict. And when you internalize conflict, it turns into resentment. And over the course of time, I guarantee it will leak out. Your emotions will always find a way to exhibit themselves. And so you either deal with your emotions or your emotions will deal with you. And the longer you delay it, tends to be the more unhealthy way that our emotions deal with us. The third way of doing conflict that I think about is, I think, a very biblical way. It's this idea of arbitration. Arbitration is the desire to find a mutual agreement. It's all about win-win. As much as possible, now I'll be honest with you, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it's, you cannot come to a win-win, but I want to tell you, that is very, very seldom. 
And we do our best to be able to understand the other person's position to help reason with our position and somehow make movement toward the other person. In fact, I will simply say this. For arbitration to work, it almost always means that both parties have to take a step toward the other party in order to do so. That's a very biblical concept. And by the way, I believe it's the concept that's inferred by the whole idea of being a peacemaker. That sometimes we just simply have to move toward one another. Now we're going to go into the book of 1 Corinthians today, and I like reading about the church of Corinth. And, and I, after I said it in last hour, I'm realizing it probably wasn't good for me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I kind of like the book of 1 Corinthians because they're really messed up Christians. And it makes me feel better about myself when I see that they are saints that they are called to be holy, they're Christians, but they still struggle with stuff, and it just kind of makes me feel good knowing that, you know what, I'm not the first person who's ever felt this way. I'm not the first person who's ever messed up as a believer. And so ever since I became a believer, I've loved to read the book of 1 Corinthians. But it's a messed up church. It really is. In fact, last week we talked about that it's a church that's divided. Well, it also is a church that doesn't do conflict in a very good way. And it's interesting when you go into chapter 3, what Paul says. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, brothers, and I think he's including sisters on this, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Let me put it a different way. I could not address you as being led by the Spirit, but by being controlled by yourself. The King James calls it carnal. You're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Now, now, three times Paul uses that word. And what he says is, you're the body of Christ, you're the family of God, you're the ones that are called out to be different in the world, and yet you're acting an awful lot like the world. Are you not acting like mere men? The idea that Paul is helping the church to understand is you don't have to just act like everybody else. We don't have to be like everybody else. Yes, we live in the world. And i got to be honest with you, sometimes when you're doing conflict in the world's sandbox, let's just be honest, you get sucked into that. My concern is that when we do battle in that origin, how sometimes we embrace it and bring it inside the body, into our marriages, into our families, into our relationships, and even into the church. Paul says when you have conflict within the body of Christ, we've got to do this different. Now, I'm going to give you three case studies, beginning in chapter 1, of what unhealthy conflict does to a relationship. Now, the first one we find is in chapter 1. We could actually look at the first 12, 15 verses, but we're just going to look at uh, several verses in here. And we're going to look at verses 10, uh, starting with chapter, t- uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 10. Unhealthy conflict is characterized by polarization. You drift further apart rather than closer together. Look what he says. Um, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean by this is one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. That's another name for Peter. I follow Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize hardly anybody. I mean, Crispus and Gaius, and yeah, there was a few people in the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't even know if I baptized anybody. He says, because it's not about being baptized, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What's happening? They're, 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 they're taking positions and they're identifying by who and what leader they identify with. I'm going to follow Paul. I'm going to follow Apollos. I'm going to follow Pastor Phil. I'm going to follow Pastor Ann. I'm going to follow... You get what I'm saying? They were divided by who they identified with. And Paul looks at them and says, now, now wait a minute. That, that's, that's really worldly. Don't identify by who you identify with, but rather, he says, find the commonality that you have in the cross of Christ. That's really the answer. The answer is to find a commonality. And Paul says, I think he's actually inferring it. If you can't find any other commonality, you always have a commonality in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's not a single person that Paul died for in order for them to go to heaven. There's not a single person who was baptized into the name of Peter. He says, all of you that are saved, that are going to heaven, that were baptized, all met at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. He is the uniting common denominator in every believer. And so even when you have differences, you can find a commonality. Now, there's a great truth in that. Because when we are having divide or when we have conflict, whether it be marriage, family, whatever it is, let's try to find the areas we can agree rather than all the areas that we don't agree. Tammy and I have been married now 32 years, going on 33 years. We have been together a long time since we were like five and six years old. That's how long we've been together. I believe it. I'm going to claim it not true, but I'm going to still claim it. It's true. But we've been here a long time. And what's interesting is we kind of laugh. Maybe she doesn't as much, but I do. When we, after we were married for a while, I realized as much as we loved each other and as much as we liked being with each other, we didn't always have a lot of things in common. Um, our hobbies aren't the same. I, I like to fish. She would want to read a book. In fact, she said she would fish with me as long as she could read a book and sit in the boat. So it's kind of how you find commonality. And uh, I, like to, I like to hunt. She likes to walk. And we found commonality by walking together out where there are trees and stuff. I enjoy that. And, and so but it's interesting, the longer we've been together, we've actually found quite a number of more things we enjoy doing together. One of the things we really love to do is Tammy, uh, Tammy and I both enjoy uh, in the evening just taking a long drive. 
And we'll sit and we'll talk about what's going on in life. I like to look in the fields. I like to spot little critters in the field. And she does too. She's actually really good at it. And we'll stop every once in a while. We'll back up, take binoculars. And little critters are called deer, by the way. Uh, we, we look back in there. She's really getting good at it. And we kind of have competition. And you know what's really interesting? On our hour to two-hour drives, they always tend to go right beside the pepperoni cow. There's another commonality. And if we go south, we always find a way to go buy tropical smoothie. That's another commonality. And if you're really desperate, like you're in Croswell or something, they got a, they got a McDonald's that you can get cones and smoothies at if you need to, right? There's always a book. There's, there's, that's what we enjoy. But when we realized very early on in our marriage is the one thing that we absolutely had in common was a devotion to Jesus Christ and a love of the local body of Christ. And that's before we ever went into ministry or called into ministry. We love the church. We love the Lord. And that always was this common denominator that no matter what the frustrations might be, we always had a commonality there. By the way, I think that's why it's so important. And as believers in Christ, we have that same commonality, or should. Number two, if you go to chapter six, there's a second unhealthy characteristic. The second unhealthy characteristic is characterized by inflexibility. I'm not moving. I am where I'm going to be. I'm not going to move toward where that person is. In fact, it's interesting. It is, it is found, Paul addresses it by talking about lawsuits. Now, he's not talking about lawsuits between people who are believers and those who are outside the church. He's talking about lawsuits between people in the church. They can't get along. They literally have to go to non-believing judges to decide for them. And Paul says this in chapter 6, if any of you has a dispute with another, because sometimes you have disputes, right? It happens. There is not, raise your hand if you're married, real quick. Ever had a dispute with the person you're married to? Sure you have, yeah. And if you're a smart guy, you've just given in, right? No, no, that's not how that works, right? He says, if you have a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Now look what he says down in verse 5. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there, is, there isn't anybody among you wise enough to, to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of non-believers. What's he saying? He says, you're taking your disagreement between non-believers, and he says, what kind of testimony is that? Verse, five and, or verse 6 and 7, he goes, or 7 and 8, he says, the very fact that you even have lawsuits means that you have already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Now, what's he talking about? It is the stubborn refusal to bend. The stubborn refusal to move. Now, I want to be really cautious here. Because I understand Paul is talking to believers about how you deal with believers. 
He also says in other passages, and if you're going to really look at the Word of God, you've got to look at the whole counsel, not just what one passage says. But he says, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with everyone. And it's not always up to you. And let's just be, let's just be honest. Sometimes we get drug into the world's sandbox. Okay? But just because you get drug into the world's sandbox doesn't mean that when you come back into the Christian relationships, the local body, see, what tends to happen is, is we see how things are being done and we drag them and that becomes the model of how we do marriage, family, relationships, and church and it looks awfully worldly rather than making sure we stick out and do things the way Christ has called us to. By the way, notice what he says here. He says, you're, you're rather, want, want, it'd be better for you to be cheated than to cheat others. And the whole idea of the answer, if you want to see the answer, the answer, he says, is you've got you to be willing to surrender your need to win. You don't always have to win. Now, please make sure you keep this where it's intended to be. We could do a whole thing about, about how we do relationship and business in the world. The principles are very similar and the same. But he's talking about how we do things in the body of Christ. How we do them in our marriages. How we do them in our, in our relationships. And he says, you, you don't always have to win. And that's hard for people who like to win. Any of you like to win? I do. And I'll even say that my natural tendency in conflict is I want to win. And I don't always have to win. In fact, this is so counterintuitive. Christ calls me at times to give up my rights. Now I want to make sure I say this correctly. We live in an incredible country. We have lots of rights by being virtue of being United States citizens. Those who are watching online, a good number of them are watching from across the border in Canada. Our borders are closed, so they're not able to come to church in person. And you have an incredible country too. But we do. We have a lot of rights. And, and by the way, we need to make sure we defend those rights. But I think sometimes that attitude permeates into the body. And we start taking those rights into our marriages, our relationships, and our church. And you know what's really interesting? Christ calls us at times to submit and surrender and serve rather than to demand our rights with each other. I have some rights as a husband. Christ calls me to serve my wife. I have some rights as a parent. Christ calls me to love and submit and serve my kids. And you're saying, how can you prove that? John 13. John 13, Jesus is the, uh, he's the son of God. Jesus is the author and the creator of this universe, Scripture says. Je Jesus is the one whom Paul says in Philippians 2, one day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that the Lord at one day is going to put all things at his feet as a footstep. I think we can agree, Jesus is the strongest in the room. 
And he's about to have his final supper with the disciples. And he is definitely the guest of honor. And he's just about to teach them about how the bread is a representation of his sinless body. And he's about to give them the cup which represents his blood shed for them. And Scripture says he gets up, takes off his outer cloak, puts a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet, even Judas, who is going to betray him, even Peter, who's going to deny him three times, and even everyone around the table, all of whom are going to abandon him. But he's the strongest. He has his rights. And Jesus said, but I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to die as a ransom for many. And oh, by the way, if you want to follow me, no student is above his teacher, John chapter 13. So do what I do. Paul says, I got all kinds of rights. I have rights as a leader in the church. I have rights as a Pharisee. I have rights as a Roman citizen. But I want you to know, I, I give all those up in order to be able to share the gospel with many it's not about my rights and somehow balancing those are challenging aren't they christ calls me by the way how do i how do i balance that i surrender number three number three the characterization found in chapter 11 got to hustle chapter 11 i gotta set the i gotta set the groundwork in chapter 11 the disciples and the early church, every time they would come together, they, for any kind of worship, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. That was just part of doing church. Uh, they would meet in homes. They would meet in public places. But they would always have the Lord's Supper because it was a, a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. What started to happen in the church is they started to participate in something called love feasts in other words we're coming together anyway why not have a potluck by the way christians didn't just start liking to eat together 20 years ago okay they went out to bob evans like 2000 years ago that's just where they went and big boy for dessert that's no I'm the, but they would have love feasts okay and it's in the context of the love feast where they would eat and eat dinner together or supper together and then move into a time of the Lord's Supper, it's within that context that Paul is speaking. Look what he says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show that which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. What in the world is he talking about? It's in the context of this whole love feast. And he says, it's become all about you. See, unhealthy conflict 
is always characterized by selfishness. And as far as I know, every conflict has to have two selves. I mean, you might have multiple selves, but you have at least two selves. And the more selfish it becomes, the further apart you become. Now, how do we answer this? <laughs> it's graciously learning how to look out for others. That in my relationship with my wife when we have conflict, my nature wants to win. But the Spirit of God wants me to protect her and look out for her. When I have a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, my nature wants to get my way. But Christ's Spirit in me wants me to learn how to look out for what their needs are. It is so unnatural. It is so not normal. But it is Jesus. And let me tell you, it speaks loudly into a world that just doesn't do conflict very well. If you were to read the book of Corinthians, and I encouraged you last week to do it. I didn't know I was going to actually preach out of it this week. But I encourage you to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And if you read it and you took out the chapter marks, because there originally were no chapters, and you take out all the verses, because there initially were no verse marks. We, we've just done that to make it easier for people to reference it and find it. And you were to read it as it was intended, it is just simply a letter to a church. You would find that there's a very natural flow and a very natural progression which naturally finds its kind of culmination in chapter 13. And some of you immediately know what I'm talking about because, oh yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter. That's the wedding chapter. That's the one we read at weddings. Do you know that Paul wasn't referring to weddings. It applies. He wasn't even talking about marriage only. He said, this is how you ought to just do life. And he says, in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, he says, uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't love them, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I don't have anything. If I give all that I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Translation, I can talk a good talk and I can walk a good walk, but it doesn't mean anything if I don't have love at the center of who I am. And then he says, and this is the kind of love I'm talking about. This kind of love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, this kind of love is generous. 
This kind of love is flexible. This kind of love is tempered. It doesn't have a temper. It, it says it's not easily anchored. It means it's tempered. It's in control. This kind of love forgives. This kind of love thinks the best of people by trusting them. This kind of love is absolutely committed and devoted to others. And why do I know that? Because he says it always protects, it always trusts, it always perseveres. And you don't ever always do anything unless you've committed yourself to always do it. That means you're going to love when you don't feel like it and even when you do feel like it. You're going to protect them when you do feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You're going to trust them when you do feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You're going to, this thing's going to persevere when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it because this is a committed love. And within that context, we do conflict that brings about resolution rather than polarizing pushing the other away. And that kind of conflict actually brings glory to God. I don't know if you've paid much attention to what's happening out west. There are wildfires everywhere. Over two million acres have burned in California, over a million in Oregon. By the way, anybody who knows Pastor Calvin and Angie, they're doing okay. They're good. They're having a hard time breathing, but they don't have any fire. I was thinking about wildfires, because now some of them are like 100,000 acres. They're huge. One fire. I'm not an expert, but most of those fires, I have to believe, started with a smaller fire. In fact, most of those fires began with just one flame. And imagine when that first flame began to spark. If someone had been sitting there with a bucket of water and just whoosh, put it on it. Wouldn't have gone anywhere, would it? Every single one of you in your relationships carries two buckets. And one of your buckets is full of water and one of your buckets is full of gasoline. And every time there's a spark, you get to decide which bucket you're going to throw. Can I encourage you in Christ? Throw the water. Love each other. Endure. Look out for them. And be a model into the world around us. Father, thanks for your word. I love how you challenge me constantly. But I never feel like you're criticizing me. I just always feel like you're challenging me. It's almost like when you look at Phil Whetstone, you say, you know what? I see the best of who you could be. And I want to challenge you to become that person through my grace and through my spirit. And Lord, I'm trying desperately to learn how to be a, a husband and a dad and a friend and a leader that honors you in the way that I do this thing of conflict. 
Forgive me, Lord, when it feels like I've got to be about my own way. When in a moment I kind of flare up and it's about me more than it's about us. And Lord, as the body of Christ represents countless numbers of families and organizations and relationships, marriages. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you, because we asked you before we ever began to speak and we said we were going to surrender. Lord, speak to me, not to the person next to me, but speak to me and hone me in the way that I relate and even do conflict with others. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.